The Rib Source podcast are sponsored in part by Smart Communications. The management of OTC derivatives documentation is often inefficient, prone to errors, and trap vital commercial information. SmartDX is the cloud application for capital markets designed to accelerate the documentation process. All of the G15 investment banks and some of the largest energy and commodity companies trust SmartDX to help them simplify trade and relationship documentation for all market participants. To find out more, please go to smartcommunications.com and search products and SmartDX. Hello and welcome to a DerivSource podcast. I'm Julia Schieffer, the founder and editor of DerivSource.com. So we've covered the impending Brexit in podcasts in previous months, but as this is an ever-changing space, we are continuing to cover the impact a UK exit from the European Union will have on the financial industry in podcasts and in articles. Recently, the UK Prime Minister Theresa May announced that she expects the UK will trigger Article 50 in Q1 of 2017. In this podcast, we're speaking to Nadine Giotto, Principal Consultant, Government and Regulatory Financial Affairs at Catalyst, to get an update on the status quo of where the UK currently stands with Brexit, and to also gain her expert view on the possible implications of Brexit, including the impact on euro-denominated clearing, which is obviously a very key topic for DerivSource readers and listeners. Welcome to the podcast, Nadine. Thank you very much, Julia. Recently, the UK Prime Minister Theresa May announced a timeline to trigger Article 50, and specifically she mentioned she plans to invoke Article 50 in Q1 of 2017. So what does this all mean, Nadine, in your view? It's welcome. I think the markets, well, we do, industry does welcome that because it gives us a definite timeline. It starts the countdown for the UK's withdrawal out of the EU. So we know that will be the UK will be out of the EU by 2019. But I think there's a certain misconception which needs to be clarified. That two-year negotiation period is about the logistics of the UK withdrawing from the EU. Then after we've dealt with the logistics, such as when does the UK stop paying in, then we need to determine what kind of trade deal we're going to have. Will it be a Swiss finish or a Norwegian finish? I think it'll be an English finish. Then we can get to the intricacies of financial regulation, such as passporting rights under MIFID or equivalents under IFMD. It's only then those details will be clarified, not within that two-year negotiation period. Nadine, can you offer us a status quo on where we currently stand with the progression towards a Brexit? When will the UK push the controversial Article 50 seems to be dominating the headlines with one camp saying that we should wait until after the French and German elections and the other side is arguing that it must be invoked immediately in order for negotiations to begin. At the moment there is still the question of the binding nature of the referendum. An opinion poll is branded by a former Chancellor. That's true. In strict legal terms, the referendum was only advisory, thus no legal obligation for the government to change the law to reflect an outvote. Can the government legally disregard a Brexit vote? It most certainly can. Article 50 is the only lawful route available to withdraw from the EU. However, it is only the first stage in a complicated and lengthy process, but it starts the countdown. Article 50 is unprecedented. 
no country has ever used it. It is a vague and empty agreement to agree. Who is going to be held accountable for something that was never envisaged by the treaties? It is therefore not surprising to me that it's not clear what the UK's constitutional requirements are for the purposes of, of Article 50. The government's current position is that it can invoke Article 50 and, and that there is no legal obligation for it to consult Parliament. Others argue that as it is a matter of domestic law, the government needs the consensus of Parliament since invoking Article 50 would lead to the UK's withdrawal of the EU and would repeal the European Communities Act. A legal challenge has been made to the government's position and a full hearing is expected to take place at the end of the month to see if an Act of Parliament is required. As Parliament will have to legislate to implement the UK's new relationship with the EU, it only seems appropriate that the Executive has proper parliamentary approval for a process that will eventually require legislation to implement. The shock over the vote has definitely worn off now. Nadine, what is your view on how the market is currently responding to the change in the future? Is this business as usual? Yes, perhaps the shock has worn off. But in terms of the seven stages of grief, we're still a long way off hope and acceptance. I did hear something the other day that it's not really the seven stages of grief. It's actually Dante's Inferno. And we're in the first circle of hell, that being limbo. The impact of Brexit is very much determined on the outcome of the negotiations. Until the government invokes Article 50s and those negotiations begin, the markets are simply responding to that uncertainty that lies ahead. For the financial sector, it's probably in a similar conundrum, in that right now, today, it is difficult to determine what the exact response should be. Contingency planning is probably scenario planning, and so to a somewhat large extent, it is business as usual. Do you see a difference in the psyche of financial institutions or the general population after the vote? You've talked about the seven stages of grief in Dante's Inferno, so I'm wondering if the psyche, as I said, of firms or the population has changed in your view. Financial institutions have always used the exogenous to announce things they were going to do anyway. I'm not quite sure it's quite apparent that there's a change of psyche, but I definitely think there's a definite uptick in the sense of urgency. In terms of the general population, yes. Albeit a hard one, a clear lesson learned from the result of the vote is a tale of two Britain, of a two-nation Britain. Brexit has unmasked some horrid instances of blatant xenophobia. However, some perspective is called for. As unfortunate those instances are, it is hardly, and I refuse to believe, reflective of the masses that did vote to leave. The lesson is that ignoring the concerns of voters is not a sustainable strategy, a strategy that has now resulted in the untangling of a complicated 40-year-old legal relationship. Noting that 40-year history, I think as Brits, some self-reflection is called for should the vote have gone the other way. It's like being in a relationship, cheating on someone for years, constantly threatening to leave because you're better off without them, where you sleep in your own house and manage your own finances only showing up for the good times, the glory bits. But then you move out, but to ransom, only to turn up on the doorstep a few months later to say, do you know what, darling, after much deliberation, I've decided I'm better off in. Greeted with open arms, I really struggle to see that. That existing relationship is no longer tenable. The relationship is so toxic now that it definitely comes with more strings, more conditions, probably more and more Europe, the very thing we've been trying to avoid for the last 40 years. It's beyond politics. It's the psychology of it all. 
So let's talk a little bit about clearing because that's an important topic for derived source readers. What's your view on the future of euro-denominated clearing in, in a post-Brexit world, and how will this debate continue to unfold? I mean, the logic is there. It's understandable why some would want this brought into the eurozone. Approximately 75% of euro-denominated derivative contracts are cleared in the UK in clearing houses such as LCH. In a Brexit era, it's hard to imagine a world where this vast volume of activity and a key part of the market infrastructure will reside outside the EU's control. The concern is that should one of these clearing houses fail, it could have serious consequences for its users, many of whom are financial institutions, EU financial institutions. However, the likelihood of this occurring is minimal. Clearing at its core is risk management. Failure and unfair pricing, the only legitimate concerns the Eurozone may have, are extremely remote scenarios. In the event the UK does get stripped of its right to clear Euro-denominated on the grounds that it's not in the EU, surely the same should happen in the US and in Hong Kong. This could open up a bitter game of retaliation. So you've mentioned this already at the beginning, and you know anyone, especially in Britain, will agree that there's been so much uncertainty around Brexit and the potential changes ahead. Euro-denominated clearing is, is one of them. Do you have any advice to firms for how they should be preparing for this change now or any actions they should be taking now? I think there's consensus. BAU, most of the regulation we are implementing today was set at a G20 level back in 2009. OTC derivatives trade and exchanges, that's MIFID, Dodd-Frank, Century Cleared. At least at an EU level, that's MIR, Stronger, More Resilient Banks enhanced capital requirements. I mean, in terms of financial regulation, there are undoubtedly one or two things we don't care for in the UK. But providing the UK doesn't vote to leave G20, in terms of policy direction of financial regulation, things will remain the same. The details are pending, but as always, that detail is the devil. Great. That's been very insightful, Nadine. Thank you for sharing your insight with us on this very timely topic. Thank you very much, Julia. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to hear more Brexit coverage, please see our previous podcasts published over the summer on DerivSource.com. And do stay tuned for more updates on this timely topic in the future. Thank you for listening. Join us next time.